Hi, this is Ron Gilbert, and welcome to the weekly Thimbleweed Park Stand-Up Meeting Podcast. Usually we talk about what we did last week and what we're going to do next week. But since it's the first Friday of the month, we're going to do our Friday questions. So Gary has the honor of reading all the questions this week. So Gary, take it away. So the first question comes from Fran. Will this game have any humor parts, or is it going to be serious business? Completely serious. There's no humor at all. Gilbert is known for not having a sense of humor. I think that it's obvious. Well, I think the question is, there is there any funny humor, or does all the humor fall flat? <laughs> well, um, I suppose that's subjective, but uh, I think it's kind of fun. If you thought the other games we did were funny, you'll probably think this was funny. We're we're des we're desperately trying to be funny. I'm laughing. Yeah, but you're laughing at us, not with us. <laughs> well, I'm laughing at my own jokes. <laughs> <laughs> see, that doesn't count. You can't laugh at your own jokes. I mean, I, I think what happens too is I see lots of funny snippets of things when you play the whole game. Sometimes it's you know if you've played it over and over again, humor is one of those things. If you've played it over and over again, it's not as funny like the 18th time you play it. But then, like I'll see. Octavia will post a new animation that's really funny, or David will post a piece of, you know, a puzzle that's really funny. You know, Ron will write some dialogue that's really funny. So it keeps getting funny stuff added to it, and I imagine when you play it fresh, it's going to be pretty funny. I hope so. That's the plan. Yeah, that's the plan. Okay, now say that funny, Gary. Um, <laughs> that's the plan. <laughs> All right, do, next with, question. Do it with a Wookiee Wookie accent. Well, so that's actually a question for you, Ron. You know, when you do playtests, are are the playtesters laughing? Uh, yeah, they are. They are. the 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 people um, that we did the playtests yesterday were were definitely laughing at the dialogue and the situations and stuff. It's it's odd because sometimes, you know, we'll put like placeholder stuff in like really quickly just because we don't we don't want to spend the time to completely write out the scene yet or do all the animation. So we just throw something in really quick, and they'll actually laugh at that stuff and think it's funny. And so it kind of makes me think, well, maybe, you know, maybe we should leave this, you know, this weird placeholder thing in because it's actually kind of funny. Like I think David did the scene where the um the two agents interrogate and I was going to write some big elaborate like, you know, good cop, bad cop interrogation scene and then David just threw in this like three line just temporary thing just to get the puzzle solvable and I kind of read that and I thought, "Oh, you know what? That's actually kind of funny." <laughs> so I just added a couple of things to it, but I really left the the temporary dialogue in there because it was actually it was actually quite funny. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes you don't know about that stuff. Huh. Good. Zach Phoenix McCracken asked, is the time of the Thimbleweed Park story set before, during, or after the events of Maniac Mansion? Well, uh, we have a big title card that comes up that says 1987, and that's when Maniac Mansion was released. However, I don't know if Maniac Mansion happened exactly in 1987, but let's assume it did. The main thing that's kind of a uh, time sort of correlation is you know Dave and Sandy are in um, Thimbleweed Park and there's the S&D diner so I'm assuming you know maybe they got held back in school a bunch and were old when they graduated and immediately went off and started this diner in Thimbleweed Park and it did well for a little while and then it's doing kind of how it's doing now I don't know what do you guys think well, I, I think, first of all, our lawyer wants to remind people that Dave and Sandy do not appear in Thimbleweed Park. That's the first thing. Second thing is that I think I think anybody, uh, I think their head will explode if they try to reconcile all the timelines of, of anything. 
because I don't I don't know that they actually make a lot of sense. <laughs> you didn't pay it's any like, attention to it, did you, Ron? No, it's like we're just kind of thinking up funny stuff. It's you know, and you know, sometimes it works chronologically, and sometimes it doesn't. And it's an alternate dimension. Yeah, I, th- I think it is in a lot of ways. But time's a little weird in this universe, anyway. It is true. So Kitty Pow Pow asks, "What program are you using to animate um, and do your pixel art with?" So. Uh, we have talked about this before, and the primary workhorse of everything that certainly we're doing on the art side is Photoshop. I, don't, I mean, there's a few things I would imagine, I'm trying to remember if there's any processing things or whatever that you guys wrote, but as an artist, I don't really use that. I just use Photoshop the entire time to just do pixel art and animate everything. I mean, I've gotten more adept at Photoshop since I started doing this, but I'm nowhere near as adept as Octavia doing animation or Mark doing backgrounds. So I get to be kind of somebody who's halfway in between the both of them, maybe, you know what I mean? So in any case, that's the tool of choice right now, and it works pretty well. Yeah, Photoshop is such an amazing tool that it's really hard to beat it on any level. You know, we looked at some more traditional, you know, 8-bit pixel animation and art tools when we started Thimbleweed. And and there is something neat about them, and, and they do have a lot of features that are really customized, you know, for doing 8-bit art. But at the end of the day, Photoshop is just so much better on so many levels that it's just, it's hard to not work in Photoshop. The thing about Photoshop is I use it for everything. I use it for like my comics and for, you know, painting and everything that I do. So it's nice to just have this one tool that you become adept at using and you just switch between the different projects using the same tool. We never were able to do that in the old days. I I keep on learning new things about it too because I'm taking the art and and putting it in. And and because it's such a widely used tool, I can have an idea, hey, there should be an easy way to do this. You know, I can just go online and find it or find a, a macro or find something which can, you know, save me a whole bunch of time. Um, like renaming, renaming layers was a huge time saver. Like you have 30 layers of animation and I have to rename them in some way. Finding, finding a plugin that does that. What's, what's that plugin? I'd like to... <laughs> I sent it to you before. Did you? <laughs> but, but yeah, so it, because there's such a huge user base um that it's hugely supported so you can find a lot of things to you know, that use it in its in its ecosystem so like when we use slicey you know that's that's totally tied to photoshop to cut up our layers and you know the png files and put them um, put them into a separate files okay roman asks back in the 80s who actually had the idea of creating an adventure game was a small group of developers who ran to business and asked for permission was it a business decision? Did you enjoy Sierra Adventure games? Or what was the main reason to start with Maniac Mansion and stuff? Uh, one thing I'll say about that is uh, we never ran to anybody to ask them anything. I think <laughs> we just kind of did whatever the hell we wanted, which was kind of an unusual situation. I think Ron's talked about it before, but we really didn't have any adult supervision. I wanted to say something about that. Back in the late 70s, I was doing conversions of text adventure games from Adventure International, from the original Radio Shack TRS-80 Basic to Apple and to um, C, you know to CPM, and then we would get a royalty when um, Scott Adams from that company would sell the games. So I loved adventure games back then, but they were all text-based. You know, and then I had this public access computer center where kids would come in and play games, and so we had a bunch of the different things and we had really early Sierra games when they were just black screens with white outlined art 
uh, the vector based. For some reason, I, I never liked those as much as the text adventures. You know, the, maybe the imagery was in my head was way better than what I was seeing on the screen. But when we were given the opportunity to do a game based on Labyrinth, the movie Labyrinth, an adventure game was an obvious choice. And that's kind of the direction we went in. And we were trying to come up with a way where we didn't need a parser. And and that, I think that worked pretty well. So there's some technology in there that, that, that was available that Charlie Kellner did for like scaling sprites and scrolling and things like that. But yeah, then um, Maniac Mansion, I think, I know came after that or came in in parallel to that. I'm not sure what the time was. I think you guys had finished Labyrinth before we started working on Maniac Mansion. Yeah, I mean, I remember because I worked on Labyrinth and, and Labyrinth was done when I started okay. on Maniac Mansion with Ron. I mean, I think the thing about Maniac Mansion, and Ron can kind of speak to this, but uh, my recollection is Ron and I wanted to do this sort of funny horror comedy game and we just started doing stuff and we really didn't know what it was. And then Ron kind of figured out, you know, to make it into the adventure game that it was. You just had all this weird kind of, you know, house and kids idea. I don't think we really knew what we were doing in the beginning. Yeah, I don't think we knew we knew what kind of game Maniac Mansion was going to be, you know, until, you know, until I, I really, you know, watched, I think it was my cousin playing the King's Quest 1 you know, and then it kind of dawned on me. It's like, oh, that's that's what it should be. But, you know, there was Labyrinth before that. I mean, I think Labyrinth was like the first kind of adventure-ish game that LucasArts had done. Yeah, but Labyrinth had like this wheel thing as opposed to the point-and-click thing. Or Yeah, well, I, I feel uh, like... It was like, the, it was like the first step, you know, towards the SCUM interface. And you know, Labyrinth was all hand-coded in 6502 and assembly and... You know, it was clunky in comparison. Um, so I feel like you guys kind of re, you know, you know, kind of set the slate clean and start over and say, okay, what's what do we really need to do in order to do this? But there maybe because we did Labyrinth, it was such a huge hit. <laughs> there wasn't a, there wasn't any resistance as if you know that ever it really ever happened. I don't remember ever ever management ever coming back and saying, no, you can't do that game. You mean Maniac Mansion? Yeah. I don't remember any anyone like management meaning really Steve Arnold ever coming back. Well, once saying, again, I think in those days, at least when there was you know only I'll say uh, you know eight or nine of us or whatever it was, there was really all that needed to happen was there just needed to be a consensus among you know the main. Well, once again, we were all the main people at that time. We just had needed to have a consensus about what game we wanted to build, and then we just went ahead and built it. I mean, that's kind of how this happened, right? Yeah, pretty much. I know there was I know there was some stuff with Maniac Mansion with Activision, you know, because Activision was originally going to publish Maniac Mansion, and I'm sure there were some you know pitch meetings and things with Activision. I don't think we were really involved in those. I think Steve probably did those. You ta you're talking about EA or Activision? Activision. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, there was some stuff like Activision was supposed to. I mean, this is the old Activision, right? This okay. is not. This is not the Activision that you know kind of resurrected. This is like the old original Activision that did the Atari cartridges. You know, they were originally going to publish the game, but you know, they pulled out of publishing it. I mean, really before the game had really started, right? They had kind of pulled out of publishing it, which. Which then um, Lucasfilm decided to self-publish it, and that was, you know, Maniac Mansion was the first game that Lucasfilm actually self-published, which kind of, you know, launched them into being an actual publisher. And Activision did publish Labyrinth. Oh, okay, so that's why. Right. So we had a relationship with them, and that was kind of our model. You know, was you, you know, we don't use our own money 
find someone else to, to pay for it and let them publish it. And that really changed with Maniac Mansion because no one else funded Nobody it. wanted to publish it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think Doug Glenn, who is our marketing guy, saw that this was, you know, a big opportunity to, to break out and do it, our, do it our, ourselves. I think he felt that we could do better than, right. and I think he did. We did. So Brian Bagnall asks, Gary, how did the workload on Habitat compare to Thimbleweed Park? The source code was just released as open source, and it looks like there was a lot more artwork compared to the average Lucasfilm game. Well, since the source code for other Lucasfilm games haven't, hasn't been released, I would say that's an interesting question. But my recollection is, is that the workload on the art side for Habitat was actually less than it was for a regular game. And I think part of that was because we had a whole bunch of stuff that was being done programmatically, whereas, um, you know, I would draw, you know, one character or whatever, and Chip would, you know, change the color on it and stuff like that, change the color of the hair. That was all done programmatically. There was a number of things. There was a lot of stuff that we drew, a lot of individual assets and a lot of items, which it was sort of a mix-and-match component thing. There was a lot less, I'm going to use the word, special case stuff. There was kind of no special case animation. It was just all kind of front stand, right stand, left stand, walk around stuff, pick up a object that was always facing the same way so there was a lot of stuff but my recollection that you know I sort of felt there was nowhere near as much work that was needed to be done on that compared to a regular adventure graphic adventure game certainly that's my recollection of it I think all the rooms in Habitat were kind of built out of pieces you know you couldn't you couldn't you know hand build a room in Habitat because it had to be downloaded and all this other stuff so you built the rooms and you know you'd create one object a vase for example and that same object would just get be you know reused everywhere where in Maniac Mansion you would have redrawn the vase for each of those rooms and was was it weren't all the assets local and you just basically got room descriptions that came down. Yeah, yeah, that's true. None of the actual assets were downloaded. This was like, you know, 150 baud modem days, so. Anyway, I remember it being very interesting and, you know, Chip certainly, you know, once again, we were ahead of the curve and 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 that translated into being ahead of the curve and not making a ton of money. <laughs> okay, so Vincent says, when and how can I test the beta of this fantastic game? Well, I don't know that we're actually going to do a beta for the game. I, I don't. I don't know that we want to do like an open public beta for it. So I don't. I don't know that there's going to be that opportunity. We're certainly, you know, are bringing in testers to test stuff, and we have that sign up sheet on the web, and we're, you know, we're bringing those people in. So there is kind of that opportunity. But in terms of actually handing the game out to people, I don't know that we're going to do that um, before the game ship. Is there, is there any reason why you, you might want to, like for compatibility testing or for things like that? I may do a compatibility test where I'll do like a really stripped down, like one room version of the game, you know, where, you, where it's just, you know, does this boot on people's machines? You know, do, do you see graphics on the screen type stuff? But it wouldn't be to test the game. It wouldn't be to test the user interface or anything else. It would just just be for compatibility testing that's something i might i might do I've, I've thought about doing that it's just a bunch of work and i have a, a lot of time so I, I don't know enough about this i remember in the old days like you know we had initial versions of like even ball blazer and rescue on fractus and once you know those were out they were like everywhere in like you know two weeks and today if we put a beta of the game 
out to people it would be everywhere in like 38 seconds with the way things work today so i don't know how good of an idea that is maybe i'm you know wrong when i say that yeah i mean that does concern me i mean the piracy thing concerns me the most about releasing a beta because you know it it is a narrative game you know there's it's it's not like a game that you're going to play for hundreds and hundreds of hours and just kind of churn on it and you know i think adventure games don't work particularly well for things like early access you know because you play them and you're done with them and that's all there is to it and i i, I worry about that a little bit you know in terms of kind of releasing betas um for the game i mean I, we have some really good testers and they're finding you know, really obscure bugs they're if anything they're being pickier than i would be in different areas and that's a, that's saying a lot yeah it's <laughs> huge enough. but that's really good because that means they're really paying attention to the fine finer points of the game and and finding like you know one pixel being in the wrong place and you know little things like that obviously if you have thousands hundreds of thousands of people playing a game they're going to find additional things but the nice thing about this game is that it's not going to be that hard to rev it if we have to i guess i'm not sure that we're counting on that it, it, i don't feel the same intense fear that we felt getting the, the final golden master floppy disks ready for production yeah that was actually always terrifying you know putting those discs together because you knew that they were going to get shipped off and you know a hundred thousand of them were going to get made and there was a lot of money at stake and we really we really sweated you know over one little bug being and stuff i think we had we had what was the rule that was like 40 hours of playing after every change you had to have at least 40 hours of play testing yeah yeah one 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 week of play testing if it ever got bumped out of test at the end it had to spend an entire week in test after that so I remember at least one or two times where you know we find this bug that we really really wanted to fix and so we'd have two or three of us gathered around the computer watching to make sure that the coding change wasn't going to be was was rational and was going to have like these yeah side I, I remember that i remember that tim wright asks how did you do testing and playthrough for the original maniac mansion and do you find there are more or less bugs this time compared to back then yeah, I don't know that we really tested Maniac Mansion that well. You know, we had one tester who played the game, and then my uncle did playtesting. He, was, he wasn't really a bug tester. I mean, he did uh, playtesting. And I think other than us, that was really about it. You know, and occasionally people in the company would play the game. But I'm really surprised, given how little testing we did on Maniac Mansion, that it wasn't a lot buggier than it really ended up being. We didn't really have a testing department. No, not at all. No. And we didn't do any play testing. You know, we didn't really bring people in and watch them play and look at how they played and looked at what puzzles they got stuck on. We, you know, we just, we did none of that back then. Estranged 2 asks, David, do you think the characters in the game are alive? Or do you see them as just a bunch of if-then commands and boring variables? Have they ever tried to escape the scene and rebel against their puppet master? <laughs> well, yeah, they're they're definitely alive in, in terms of when you when you write words coming out of their mouth. Um, you know, it's really clear by now what each of the characters would say when they say something. So you kind of feel like, at least I feel like, I'm in their head when I'm writing stuff for them. I'm sure that that's true for Ron and and for Lauren. I don't know that they've ever escaped and rebelled though, <laughs> and I I don't have I have not had any clown nightmares or anything like that yet. So they. They're pretty, they're pretty tame right now. They're, they're staying in the code. 
Well, I think anytime you're doing characters, you know, writing for them, I think they always have to feel alive to you. You know, they can't just feel like characters on a piece of paper. You know, they have to feel like it is an actual person out there that you're writing for. Yeah, and, and there are places like yesterday. There was actually a bug that came in that when one of the when Reyes looked at the sign that you see when you first enter Thimbleweed Park, the comment there was only one comment, and it, I think this is probably one of the really early things that Ron wrote, and it was pretty nasty. And the play tester said, I mean, they get, the bug tester said that doesn't seem like something would come out of Reyes's mouth. So. You know, I went in there and added a different comment for each of the four characters that would be able to read the sign. That felt more in line with how they would. And that might get changed and edited, but there, that's probably a polished pass where if, if a line is extreme in some way, then it should really be watched who's actually saying it to make sure that everyone stays in character. And that's the kind of testing we're getting, that kind of polished stuff we're getting now, which is kind of good. Yeah, one thing I noticed from watching the play testers play the game is when the default responses show up you know you try to look at something and the characters just say i don't see anything interesting or i can't push that or you know those default responses those really start to pop out when you're watching play testers like i don't notice them as much when i'm playing the game but i really notice it when other people are playing the game because they often expect a response out of something you know they they had an idea in their head and then when they looked at something they expected to get some information out of that and then when it just says i don't see anything interesting about that you know you really see oh that was a default response you know and you want to go in and you want to you know fix those and add custom lines to as much as you can right or or if there's you know similar to that would be like if they try a combination of objects that you hadn't thought of but it would totally make sense you know, I can't do that with that. I mean, in the playtest yesterday, there's, without giving away any spoilers, is this, there's this puzzle where you essentially steal something from somebody. The playtester yesterday then tried to give the thing back to the person that they just stole it from. And that's a situation just that hadn't occurred to us, right? So all that they got was, you know, he doesn't seem to want that. Which makes really strange because you just stole this thing from him. He probably <laughs> should have some response when you try to give it back to him. So I already have one of those. <laughs> I don't need another one of those. So it looks kind of like mine, but yeah, yeah. So you know, that's a case where we have to go in and write, a, you know, a custom response for that kind of thing. But it just never occurred to any of us, oddly enough, to just give the thing back to the guy. And that's where testing can come in really useful. Nick asks. How many songs roughly will end up being in the final version of the game? Oh, I'm going to go look that up right now. Play some elevator music while Ron looks that up. Yeah, live on the air, I'm going to go look up how many songs there are in the game. Well, this, I mean, the, the, the songs are kind of made up of these small, like 15 to 20 second little tracks that, you know, Steve did them in, in such a way that like, you know, any track of a pool of music can segue into any other track. So we kind of randomly play these little 15 or 20 second snippets of music and then just chain them all together randomly. And it produces, you know, kind of non-repetitive uh, sound music. And then each area of the game has their own pool of music that you have so when you're you know you're in the town versus in the county versus at the bus station you know you get these kind of different pools of music and so 
I mean, of there's a lot of these. I mean, there's a lot of these little twenty second tracks of the thing. But you can't mix a track from one pool with another pool. No, 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 you can't do that. There's about seventy five different little pieces of music in the game. And how many how many pools were there? Um, there's there's probably there's probably about twenty different pools. Yeah, are they all in? Do we have more coming? The factory is not in yet. Okay. That is the one big pool that we're missing. Okay. TM asks, so less than six months to your intended release date. Are you feeling panic yet? <laughs> I think we've been feeling panic for the last six months. So I don't, I don't think there's anything new about the panic that we're, we're feeling. But this feeds into sort of, you know, I think we're pretty firm on the January release. I mean, it's looking like we should be able to do that. Yeah, I don't want to slip that date. And I don't think that we'll have any reason to slip that date, really. I think everything will get done. It feels to me like, I'm going to say this out loud, I believe Mark is delivering, like, this week the last, you know, room that needs to be delivered. Yep. You know, there's going to be some changes and things, but I believe we will have hit all of the rooms in the entire game by the end of this week. Does that sound about right? Just a second. I'm going to wait for this truck to go by. Um, yeah, Mark is delivering the last piece of original room art. So after um, Friday, everything will be done. And then he'll just move into a polish phase after that, going through and fixing all the little things that we've found. Um, Octavia's got quite a bit of special case animation, you know, that you and Octavia are doing. But room-wise, which, you know, it's really the huge chunk of the stuff that, that should be done on Friday. Is that there are a couple more uh, close-up screens probably in addition? Um, yeah, that's true. There are some close-ups, yeah. But but overall, it's feeling to me like most of the key art, you know, that makes up the entire, I'm going to say, architecture of the game is pretty much going to be in the game by next week. Yeah, should be. That doesn't, you know, I'm going to say uh, dial back the panic that much, but it, it does, you know, say that we're, I think we're making progress. Yeah, the nice thing about the polish phase is that that can kind of go on as long or as short as you need it to. You know, there's some, there's definitely some polish that we absolutely have to do. But, you know, after that chunk of work, then it kind of goes into this, you know, nice to have type polish. And we just kind of keep polishing until we run out of time. Yeah, Ron goes, hey, we can ship it with that. that that's shippable. It is true, though. I mean, you kind of look at something and you go, is that shippable, right? And if it's shippable, then it kind of gets moved to the end of the of the polish phase and you deal with the stuff you find. You go, all right, that's not shippable. You know, that's not a shippable piece of art or it's not a shippable piece of dialogue or puzzle. And that's that's kind of how my head divides everything up at this stage in the project. Is it shippable? Is it not shippable? There, there was a, I remember Rob asked, Robert Early Tester asked recently about the art in the mansion, front of the mansion, you know, asking, you know, kind of just maybe noticing for the first time, or at least saying something for the first time that looked like maybe it wasn't quite as polished as the rest. And that was true. I mean, there was a, there was a, one of the rooms that Mark did a whole bunch, but we kind of left some of the polish until later. But it took Rob maybe six months to notice that maybe it wasn't perfectly finished. So it could, it could ship that way. Yeah, is, is that shippable? Yeah. yeah, I think it is. So Leah Lokanen asks, what new things have you learned in regards to programming, asset creation, etc., whilst making Thimbleweed Park? Back when I was doing the graphic adventure games at LucasArts, they were all still hugely limited 
by disk space. And so this whole thing we're doing now, which is what we were just talking about, which is like the polish phase, where you can actually go back and add a whole bunch more animation or add a whole bunch more polish to the room and make it look better is a huge luxury that, you know, would ne never even occurred to me back then because it just never happened because we couldn't have done it. Not because we, the art looked as good as it could ever be because based on the pixels we had to work with and the colors. Definitely doing development in phases. You know, and I've talked before, that's something that I really learned how to do with the humongous entertainment games where, you know, you do like a, like a, an early, you know, rough cut phase, and then you kind of go through a second phase and a third phase and then a polish phase. You know, that's something that's very different, you know, than how we built the games back at Lucasfilm. You know, I remember rooms for Monkey Island, you know, we'd go, okay, well, we need this room. And then we would just finish the room. You know, we'd get completed art and then we complete all the puzzles and then we kind of move on to the next room you know, rather than rather than doing it in layers. I never, I know when I did Zach, I never did a room. I don't think for Indie Saint, same thing we never did a room that we threw away it was like you know it's too expensive to do it you know and just locked in at the time that we did it yeah it's because we we'd invested so much time in getting the room working you know rather than just quickly getting the room in and seeing if it works so i think that's probably the biggest production technique that i've learned in doing this stuff i mean programming wise i don't think there's anything really new you know there's definitely compilers are better and faster and you know, all that kind of stuff. But technique-wise, I think it's pretty much the same as it was back then. There, the For me, the whole voice thing is going to be new. Um, I haven't had to deal with that yet. But oh. that's, um, yeah, as we start doing that, that's going to be a big difference. Yeah, there would definitely be some issues when the voice goes in because there are probably parts of the game where having silence, you know, we're not really thinking about it. You're like conflicting with sound effects. Um, but once the voice goes in, you kind of realize, oh, well, this person's saying something right as the sound effect is happening. And, you know, you need to kind of offset those things, you know, have the sound effect happen, then have the person say the dialogue. So I think there are some things like that that will probably come up against when the dialogue goes in. Corndog King wants to know, Ron, will you be putting an Alfred Hitchcock sprite version of yourself in the game? Well, actually, um, all David, Gary and I are all going to appear in the game. We all, we have cameos. I mean, everybody in the team actually has a cameo in the audience of Ransom Ransom's act, but uh, David and Gary and I um, will appear in ThimbleCon, you know, as actual characters that you do get to interact with and have conversations with. Unfortunately, I don't have my 1987 here. <laughs> Do you do you want do you want Gary to modify you? Do you want your 1987 hair that can be actually arranged? We can do that. We we have the medical technology <laughs> to bring your hair back, David. To to, to re replace your hair and your eight bit hair, David. <laughs> yes, I might want that. Okay, well, we'll, 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 or you could just wear a hat at ThimbleCon like you do every place else. Right. And can you can Gary can you dress me up in my 1980s parachute pants that I used to have? I'd, I'd rather not dress you up in anything. <laughs> on, but but we'll see about that, you know. Uh, Jeffrey Paulson asks, "What are your thoughts on the number of items in a player's inventory?" That's a really good question because I think you're always trying to balance that off. You know, you're always trying to make sure that players' inventory doesn't feel bloated that they're just scrolling through item after item after item that they have no use for. But on the other hand, you know, you don't want to constantly be trimming their inventory down so they only have the stuff that they absolutely need. 
because there is some you know puzzle solving benefit that comes from looking at your inventory and going okay well what do i need do i have what i need to solve this thing so you know what we try to do is is as the game kind of moves through different phases you know we try to like trim the inventory you know it's like when the game moves from act one to act two we try to get rid of you know inventory that's not needed so we kind of try to do things like that we also try to make sure that when you use an item if you don't need it that somehow it's consumed in the action you know so you're not you're not left with this thing in your inventory after you've used it and that's kind of hard right because it can't just magically vanish it needs to disappear you know within the fiction of using the thing to solve the puzzle and that can be hard so i mean there definitely will be you know items that you've already used in the game that are left in your inventory but i think i think there's no way around that without really simplifying the puzzles too much this is from Stefan. There's rumors on the internet, TM, that Melee Town in Monkey Island was inspired by Rottenberg Ob der Taber. Are those rumors true? Yeah, I've seen that a lot. It's like I get so many tweets from people every day showing me the pictures of that town and the pictures of Melee and going, oh, was Melee inspired by this town? And the interesting thing is like a lot of times the pictures of Melee that accompany the picture of the town are actually modified pictures. Those aren't actually the pictures of Melee that appeared in the game. Somebody has gone through and made the Melee Island pictures look like the town rather than the opposite. I mean, there is some kind of vague resemblance to the town and I actually asked Mark because, you know, Mark Ferrari is the one that did that town. I asked him, did you do this? And he said he has never seen that picture before. Um, he did say that, you know, whenever he draws something, he does go through and look at a whole lot of reference art. You know, he'll just run through, you know, books and magazines and stuff. And it's very possible that he came across that picture. But there was no specific intent to make that Melee Island screen look like um, that town. So, so Roddenberg Chamber of Commerce, your hopes have been dashed. Ivan wants to know, the work on Monkey Island 2 started before the sale of Monkey Island 1 started. Have you started thinking about Thimbleweed Park 2 while debugging and performing other not-so-exciting tasks? Well, first of all, I think debugging is a pretty exciting task, so <laughs> I'm, not sure I'd, I'm not sure I'd agree with that, that premise. Also, the first part of the thing isn't actually true. You know, it is true that we started working on Monkey Island 2 before Monkey Island 1 kind of hit the store shelves but back then you know you would you know we would give out the gold masters we would finish the game and it was months before that game hit the shelf um the store shelves just because there was a whole manufacturing process that had to happen you know it's not like today where you finish the game and you press a button on the steam you know developer webpage and boom the game is for sale so i really was not thinking about monkey island 2 until monkey island 1 was finished when we were finished with the game, then, you know, I went and I took some time and I started to think about, you know, Monkey Island 2. Other, other than kind of the broad strokes of the of the story, you know, and the trilogy of games and where all that I was going, we really didn't start working on Monkey Island 2 until Monkey Island 1 was done. And I think it's the same thing with, you know, if there is going to be a next game after Thimbleweed Park, it's like we're not thinking about that at all. It's like we have too much to think about, you know, to even begin thinking about that. All right, I guess that is it. That is all of our questions. So do you, uh, either you have anything else to add? Yeah, I, I was to say right from an earlier question, I was, you know, yesterday, I, I wouldn't say panic is the right word, but I was definitely feeling 
kind of in the in the overwhelmed state with all the things left to do that all have to be done like right now. Bugs, fixing old bugs, new art assets, rooms that haven't been wired yet. And realize that there really aren't that many new rooms yet, but they're just the, the feeling I had. I feel okay today, but yesterday was like one of those like, Ugh. Yeah, I had that feeling today, this morning when I sat down on my computer, because I'd been gone most of the day doing the play tests. And so when I got back this morning and I pulled up the bug list and I just saw this, you know, a page of bugs that I had to fix, I was definitely kind of feeling like, oh my God, that is so much work. But, you know, as I, as I started to go through them, you know, I kind of realized, oh, well, this bug was fixed in one minute. This bug was fixed in, you know, two minutes that while there were a lot of bugs, you know, I was through most of them in less than a half hour. So I started to feel less overwhelmed. And I, I, that helps me. I mean, there's a bunch of bugs that, that are just typos that I really shouldn't be fixing now, but it makes me feel... Yes, that sense that sense of accomplishment. Yeah, it's a meditative process where I'm checking things off and, and that one's done. That's you yeah. know, a 15-second fix, but it just made me feel better. Yeah, if I find often when I'm feeling overwhelmed with the amount of stuff, I will I will go through the list and I'll pick something that it would be fun to fix. And I'll go fix that first. And that kind of gets me more in this mode of, oh, well, that was a fun thing to fix or that was a fun thing to implement. And that just kind of engages my brain a little bit. And then I can jump back and do the more mundane. Mundane. That's the word I was thinking of. Mundane things. Okay. Well, I guess that is it for this week's podcast. Yeah, uh, and one, one thing I was going to mention. So, you know, given that we're kind of, you know, in the, the you know, Six, last six months of panic mode, uh, and I think Ron might have mentioned this. We're going to probably be going to what one of these every two weeks now. What's yeah, the deal, podcast Ron? every two weeks. Yeah. Okay. So you know, tank up on this right now because you won't hear another one for two weeks. You can always you know listen to if you if you miss us and you feel lonely, you know, go back and see the archive. Yeah, we don't really say anything different every week. You probably could go back and listen to a podcast from like three months ago and probably not know. Okay. I will talk to you guys later. Okay, bye. Bye. And we're out. Still recording. Still recording. (laughs) Yeah. 44 minutes. It'll take a while. Yeah, it's like I always edit these on Saturday morning. Well, then how long does it take you to edit one of these things, Ron? Oh, a long time. If if we if we do like our normal 15-minute podcasts, it takes me about an hour and a half to edit them. These podcasts, because they're 44 minutes long, this will probably take me two to three hours to go through and edit. So that, that's, my, that's my Saturday morning is going to be editing this podcast. That's two to three hours less of Thimbleweed Park coding just so people can listen to this that's why i mean that's the reason we wanted to trim the podcast once every two weeks because it's it's not it's not the 15 minutes that we spend recording them it's the hours that are spent editing them and uploading them and all that stuff that we just go to live podcasts and then you don't have to worry about editing we could but you know what it's like i remove so much stuff from these podcasts and it's you know some of it is a little spoiler stuff but there's just there's so many times where you know we cough in the middle of something or you know somebody kind of stutters for 15 seconds trying to remember what they're saying so 
I, I feel like going through and editing these podcasts is like I'm trying to make us look smarter. Ron, Ron, Ron removes offensive things that David says, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, because David's a potty mouth. Man. <laughs> it's like he might as well be Ransom the Clown. <laughs> yeah, every other word's a curse word. You guys just can't hear that because Ron cuts all that stuff out. Well, I've been going around saying beeping a lot more than I ever have before. All right. See you guys later. Okay, bye.